Chapter Thirty One of The Turn of the Tide. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording by Holly Robinson. Chapter Thirty One of The Turn of the Tide by Eleanor H. Porter. The household at Hillcrest did not break up as early as usual that year. A few days were consumed in horrified remonstrances and tearful pleadings on the part of Mrs. Meredith and Ned when Margaret's plans became known. Then several more days were needed for necessary arrangements when the stoical claim of a despair had brought something like peace to the family. "'It is not so dreadful at all,' Margaret had assured them. "'I have taken a large house not far from the mills, and I am having it prepared and painted and put into very comfortable shape.' Patty and her family will live with me, and we are going to open classes in simple little things that will help toward the better living. "'But that is regular settlement work,' sighed Mrs. Meredith. "'It is,' smiled Margaret a little wearily. "'Well, perhaps it is. Anyway, I hope that just the presence of one clean, beautiful home among them will do some good. I mean to try it, at all events.' "'But are you going to do nothing but that all the time? "'Just teach those dreadful creatures and—and and live there?' "'Certainly not,' declared Margaret, with a bright smile. "'I've planned a trip to New York.' "'To New York?' Mrs. Meredith sat up suddenly, her face alight. "'Oh, that will be fine, lovely. "'Why didn't you tell us? Poor dear. "'You'll need a rest, all right. "'I'm thinking, and we'll keep you just as long as we can, too.' "'With lightning rapidity.' Mrs. Meredith had changed their plans, in her mind. They would go to New York, not Egypt. Egypt had seemed desirable, but if Margaret was going to New York, that altered the case. "'Oh, but I thought you weren't going to New York,' laughed Margaret. "'Besides, I'm going with Patty.' "'With Patty?' If it had not been tragical, it would have been comical. Mrs. Meredith's shocked recoil at the girl's words. "'Yes, after we get everything nicely to running. "'We shall have teachers to help us, you know. "'Patty and I are going to New York to see if we can't find her sisters, "'Arabella and Clarabella.' "'What absurd names!' Mrs. Meredith spoke sharply. "'In reality, she had no interest whether they were going or were not absurd. "'But they chanced at the moment to be a convenient scapegoat "'for her anger and discomfiture.' "'Patty doesn't think them absurd,' laughed Margaret. She would tell you that she named them herself out of a piece of a book she found in an ash barrel long ago when they were children. You should hear Patty say it, really to appreciate it. She used to preface it by such remarks as, Names ain't like in measles and relations, you know. You don't have to have em if you don't want em. You can change em. Ugh! shuddered Mrs. Meredith. Margaret, how can you laugh? Why, it's funny, I think laughed Margaret again, as she turned away. Even the most urgent entreaties on the part of Margaret failed to start the Spencers on their trip, and not until she finally threatened to make the first move herself and go down to the town did they consent to go. "'But that absurd house of yours isn't ready yet,' protested Mrs. Meredith. "'I know, but I shall stay with Patty until it is. I would rather wait until you go, as you seem so worried about the break,' as you insist upon calling it. But if you won't, why, I must, that is all. I must be there to superintend matters. 
"'then I suppose I shall have to go,' moaned Mrs. Meredith, "'for I simply will not have you leave us here "'and go down there to live, "'and I shall tell everybody, everybody,' she added firmly, "'that it is merely for this winter "'and that we allowed you to do it "'only on that one condition.' "'Margaret smiled, but she made no comment. "'It was enough to fight present battles "'without trying to win future ones. "'On the day the rest of the family left Hillcrest, Margaret moved to Patty's little house on the hill road. Her tiny room up under the eaves looked woefully small and inconvenient to eyes that were accustomed to the luxurious hillcrest, and the supper, which to Patty was sumptuous in the extravagance she had allowed herself in her visitor's honor, did not tempt her appetite in the least. She told herself, however, that all this was well and good, and she ate the supper and laid herself down upon the hard bed with an exaltation that rendered her oblivious to taste and feeling. In due time the mill-house, as Margaret called her new home, was ready for occupancy, and the family moved in. Naming the place had given Margaret no little food for thought. "'I want something simple and plain,' she said to Patty, "'something that the people will like and feel an interest in. But I don't want any refuges or havens or rests or homes about it. It is a home, but not that kind that begins with a capital letter. It is just one of the mill-houses. Well, why don't you call it the mill-house, then, and done with it, demanded Patty. Patty, you are a genius. I will, cried Margaret. And the mill-house it was from that day. Margaret's task was not an easy one. Both she and her house were looked upon with suspicion, and she had some trouble in finding the two or three teachers of just the right sort to help her. Even when she found these teachers and opened her classes in sewing, cooking, and the care of children, only a few enrolled themselves as pupils. "'Never mind,' said Margaret. "'We shall grow, you'll see. The mill people, however, were not the only ones that learned something during the next few months. Margaret herself learned much.' She learned that while there were men who purposely idled their times away and drank up their children's hard-earned wages, there were others who tramped the streets in vain search of work. "'I hain't got nothin' ter do yet, miss,' one such said to Margaret, in answer to her sympathetic inquiries. "'But thar ain't a boss but what said if I'd got kids, I might send them along. They was short o' kids I been tryin' ter keep Rosie and Katie ter school. I was callin ter make something of em more'n their dad and their mammy is, but I reckon as how I'll have ter set em to work. Oh, but you mustn't, remonstrated Margaret. That would spoil everything. Don't you see that you mustn't? They must go to school, get an education. The man gazed at her with dull eyes. They got ter eat first, he said. Yes, yes, I know interposed Margaret eagerly. I understand all that, and I'll help about that part. I'll give you money until you can get something to do. A sudden flash came into the man's eyes. His shoulders straightened. Thank you, miss, but we beant charity folks. And he turned away. A week later, Margaret learned that Rosie and Katie were out of school. When she looked them up, she found them at work in the mills. This matter of the school question was a great puzzle to Margaret. Very early in her efforts, she had sought out the public school teachers and asked their help and advice. She was appalled at the number of children who appeared scarcely to understand that there was such a thing as school. 
this state of affairs she could not seem to remedy however in spite of her earnest efforts the parents in many cases were indifferent and the children more so some of the children in the mills indeed were there solely according to their parents version because they could not get on in school conscious that there must be a school law margaret went vigorously to work to find and enforce it then and not until then did she realize the seriousness of even this one phase of the problem she had undertaken to solve there were other phases too it was not always poverty margaret found that was responsible for setting the children to work sometimes it was ambition there were men who could not even speak the language of their adopted country intelligibly yet who had ever before them the one end and aim money to this end and aim were sacrificed all the life and strength of whatever was theirs the minute such a man's boys and girls were big enough and tall enough to be sworn in he got the papers and set them to work and never after that as long as they could move on dragging little foot after the other did they cease to pour into the hungry treasury of his hands the pitiful dimes and pennies that represented all they knew of childhood end of chapter thirty one